Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, why FEMA is changing a policy criticized for denying black families disaster relief funds. We'll find out what that's all about. Also, there's a COVID-19 alert in Douglas and Cobb counties. That's because of a steady increase in positive tests, emergency room visits and hospitalizations. Douglasville Mayor Rochelle Robinson talks about the city's measures to mitigate the spread. All those conversations are just ahead. But first this, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they've issued an urgent health advisory to encourage COVID-19 vaccinations among pregnant people. The health advisory says the agency strongly recommends COVID-19 vaccination before or during pregnancy because the benefits far outweigh the risks to pregnant people and their infants. It also calls on doctors and local public health departments to educate those expecting a child on the benefits and safety of vaccines. The CDC says pregnant people who contract COVID-19 are at an increased risk of ICU admission and death, with more than 161 deaths reported from late January through late September. Meanwhile, Georgia Department of Public Health Commissioner Dr. Kathleen Toomey stressed the importance of the CDC's new advisory. Another high-risk condition, incidentally, is is pregnancy, and and CDC now is actively urging us to ensure that pregnant and recently pregnant patients get vaccinated or get boosters as they are likely to, uh, are more likely to become severely ill. Dr. Toomey and Georgia Governor Brian Kemp held a press briefing earlier today to give an update on the coronavirus here in the state. Now, Dr. Toomey cited Georgia's overall vaccination rates needs, they need to improve. The single most important thing we can do as a state is get additional people vaccinated for the first time. Our numbers of total vaccinated individuals are still too low, and most experts believe that our rates are not sufficient to combat any possible future surges that may come our way. Dr. Tumi also talked about who's eligible for the Pfizer booster shot. Right now, these boosters are just for people who have received Pfizer. And I know that's really of concern to people who have received J&J or who have received Moderna. That will be coming. We anticipate from CDC that the recommendations for boosters for the other vaccines will be coming in the coming weeks very quickly because they are examining the data for those vaccinations. But it's just for those individuals who receive Pfizer. And, And remember that your current vaccinations are still offering significant protection. And no one is authorized at this time to boost with Moderna or Pfizer. 
In other news, the path for Buckhead to break away from Atlanta, well, just got a big push. Republican state senators have drafted a bill that will allow Buckhead residents to vote next year on creating their own city. Alpharetta State Senator Brandon Beach says his bill will only be reviewed during November's redistricting session at the state capitol. Let me be clear, this is not on the call for the special session. We cannot bring this up on the floor of the Senate. We can have committee meetings. Beach says those hearings will look at a recent Buckhead City feasibility study. And the Buckhead breakaway movement has been fueled by an increase in violent crime in the area. And we should note that violent crime is taking place throughout the entire city of Atlanta. Finally, there's officially a new chair of the Fulton County Board of Elections. Longtime Atlanta Democrat Kathy Woolard took the oath of office yesterday. From WAB News, Woolard says her experience will be beneficial and allows her to see beyond what she calls the, quote, chatter and smoke of politics and find the facts. That's the approach she plans to take overseeing Fulton elections, which has been the subject of an ongoing disinformation campaign following former President Donald Trump's 2020 loss. In the general election last year, uh, the metrics speak for themselves. Fulton County performed admirably. And what we want to do is establish a basis of consistent excellence uh, so that, you know, the attention can go elsewhere. Willard dismissed criticism that she's too partisan for the post. Fulton is trying to stave off a state takeover, the count, state takeover of the county's elections department. That's under Georgia's new Republican-backed election law. Reminder, early voting for the November 2nd municipal elections start October 12th. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Close Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE. At Anna's Choice for NPR, as always, I'm Rose Scott. Two neighboring counties are being closely monitored as COVID-19 cases continue to rise. Now, according to the Cobb and Douglas Public Health, both are experiencing steady increases in COVID cases, emergency room visits, and hospitalizations. Now, you may recall recently I spoke with Cobb County Board of Commission Chairwoman Lisa Cupid about her move in signing a declaration of emergency for Cobb due to the rise of COVID cases and a partnership between Cobb and Douglas County with Wellstar to open more testing sites. And I'm very fortunate that um, the leadership has been able to respond and open up these facilities, but we need the public to respond as well and not wait until you know they are infected, do what they can do proactively. If you're ill, get tested, make sure that you do not have COVID or if you do, you know, take precaution or protocol, but let's do what we can even before then and get vaccinated. 
Since that conversation, Chairwoman Cupid has signed an extension to the declaration of emergency through mid-October, keeping all emergency protocols in place. But let's now turn to neighboring Douglas County. Joining me is Douglasville Mayor Rochelle Robinson. Mayor, welcome to the program. I appreciate you taking the time. To um, be on the program is such a blessing. Oh, thank you. Listen, let's start here because, you know, we are obviously 19 months into this pandemic. And just overall, your thoughts on where you see or, ho- or hopefully you see your county and in your city uh, turning here, let's say by the end of the year. By the end of the year, we just pray by opening more sites and having accessibility that people will go ahead and pay attention to the science and get vaccinated. That's the only thing that's going to stop and slow this spread of COVID-19. And I'm, you know, I'm from the military formally. So when you start doing alphabets, Delta, Lambda, Mu, it isn't going away anytime soon. So we need to follow the science and and be smart. So I want us to vaccinate ourselves so that we can protect ourselves and others. As mayor, I mean, have you had conversations with folks who have some either some type of vaccine hesitancy or they just haven't received it yet? And what are those conversations? What have they been like? Oh my gosh. Now I, I'm on the community services board and the health board with Dr. Meemark, who is the CEO of uh, Cobb and Douglas Public Health. And so I get that information every day, like Commissioner Cupid. And so I'm able to talk with them and hopefully talk um, facts and not just theories. And so some people are nervous. They're saying it was too fast. And I said, you know, I'm from the 60s, baby, so I have that mark on my arm where we wouldn't, in school, we just stood in line, ate the sugar cube, we got all the vaccines, polio and all these things that we know in the world to try to eradicate, we've had vaccines. And so I just try to talk um, sense into them, or I shouldn't say sense, (laughs) but just try to talk facts and hopefully that will help them to put that into the equation and make a smart decision. But I have talked to people with hesitancy and some people it's political, I don't understand how it can be political. I just don't. Well, when you say you don't understand and they say, well, you know, are you perceived that it is political, then what do you say? What's your response to that? Well, I say to them, they're saying, it's my right as a person. The government can't tell me what to do. You know, they're on and on and on. And it was too fast. And I say, well, you know, my husband thinks that he can drive at 150 miles an hour on the freeway. And he probably could, he's a a really great driver, but those signs have a speed limit at 70 or 35 or 45. And you put that seatbelt on because the law says for you to do it for your own safety. So it's the same thing. So I say to them, yeah, it's your right. You can drive really fast, but you're gonna get a ticket. So in this instance, get vaccinated so that you can protect yourself, whether you think it's a political right or not. Um, it's your right to be healthy and not to die in the hospital. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, has, just as recent as yesterday, is sort of bearing down on the fact that he believes that people have a mistrust in, in the government. And that's the yeah. reason he also blamed the media. Uh, what's your t- let's start with the, the government. What's your take on that? That it's people don't have a trust in the government right now. And that could be a reason. Well... I think that some of those, uh, the mistrust is warranted in some because of what we've just come through um, on the national stage. Uh, we've had uh, people that don't believe in the, in the vote that had taken place in 2020 and uh, so many mistruths that were out there. And so they're thinking, and I, I don't understand how, when you can see with your own face of the insurrection that it was one way or this way. And so 
I do think that people have a mistrust. And then, you know, the um, Tuskegee experiment that happened many years ago with African-Americans and how uh, we're sometimes used as guinea pigs. So I can see what people will mistrust the government. Um, so that may be warranted. But uh, our government has been very transparent and we don't have uh, a reason for them to mistrust us. So then but it is- where does it, and my, my apologies for cutting you off, then who do oh, you no, think I'm- or whom do you think then in the community folks will trust? Are we talking about probably from the faith community, maybe having, you know, primary care physicians come speak with residents or who then do you think folks can trust? I think it just depends on your paradigm and where you're from. Um, Typically with African-Americans, if we've grown grown up in the church, uh, a minister is a trusted friend. And so um, having those partners in the faith-based community could be someone that folks would trust and or the medical professionals if they have an opportunity to speak with them. And just to talk to people one-on-one, I I think it has made a difference. And my young, I have uh, three children, 18, 20, and 22. Pray my strength. They're all in college (laughs) at the same time. And so (laughs) I've had to go to uh, to my daughter's dorm, one's at Kennesaw, Savannah State, and Georgia Southern, and talk to her roommates. And uh, one did not get vaccinated. And we kept talking with her, and she finally did. So I think having that one-on-one conversation with someone that you may have a little bit of trust with, so either an elder a minister or a healthcare professional, I think is people that we can trust. For your residents in, in Douglasville, you all have received, and I imagine like many other cities, obviously in states, obviously like Georgia, you've all received some type of federal funding for specific initiatives or programs to help as it relates to COVID-19. What have you been doing and what, how much have y'all received? I'm curious. Uh, $10 million. Um, enough? That last ARP, yes, ma'am. And before that, the CARES Act with the county had given us our portion. And so we had a rental assistance. We did uh, collaborate with the Chamber of Commerce to help with all small businesses. And so we had minority business loans as well with the Chamber, Google, and Switch. And so we all collaborated together and um, helped people to stay afloat during this time because I did have to do an executive order in the beginning and shut down businesses and uh, people like Gumbos. I know he's going to get me for saying this, but they were calling me and please don't close my business, Rochelle. But I told them, you know, I feel for you, but if, if nobody's alive to come and eat, we need to shut down for a while and in the beginning just to have takeout. So, but yes, yes, ma'am, we've used some of those monies for rental assistance, helping with small businesses. Um, we're collaborating with utility departments, with the water department to help people keep their uh, their lights on. And uh, we're doing something for the, uh, the uh, employees that stayed during COVID. We're giving them an incentive and those who've been vaccinated, we're giving them an incentive as well. Now, so you, you all also, in September, you had the September Saturdays and you had all these incentives. And you had some monetary incentives where, you know, yes. look, money, hey. <laughs> how how successful was that? How was the turnout? That turnout has been great. You are so, I just love Rose Scott. She knows everything. The icon. Um, <laughs> I don't know about all that, but hey. <laughs> yeah, yes, you are. Yes, you are. So, um, yes, ma'am, we did have incentives at September Saturdays. And so we were socially distanced and people had their mask on, but we did give away $100 gift cards. And it was the first week, I think there were probably... 
about 50 or 75 and then it caught on that second September Saturdays and I think it were about 125 or 200 people that came in and got their vaccine uh, vaccine so that was wonderful that was a great incentive you got continue to do that because if it's working I know that's right we'll see how many what you know we have to collaborate in but other words that, you gotta get some more money there you go <laughs> And by the way, the lines. There you go. And by the way, producer LaShawn Hudson told me that, so I want to give her credit because I don't, you know, I don't know oh. everything. But I but I do want to talk about what what's not working. And obviously, as the mayor, you are concerned about your residents, and that also includes, you know, the school system here. Now, Douglas County School System may not be the, the largest in, in the state, but you have about what, maybe twenty six, twenty seven thousand students. Exactly. Right? And about awesome. what? thirty uh, some schools. Um, yes, ma'am. The district is requiring masks. Obviously, you you support that. But what do you make of that? It is being left left up to districts, and that maybe there should be a mask mandate for all of Georgia's schools. Or do you? What's your take on that? I think it it would be something positive. I know the Board of Regents has not made that decision, and I heard the other day or saw some report that University of Georgia, some of those professors, mm-hmm. I think 50 of those professors said, you know, these ch- these young students need to be vaccinated because they're putting us at risk to go home with our families. And so, um, as I said, I have three college students, and they have hybrid classes. Some are in person, some are online. Um, but Savannah State is serious about wearing their mask, and they've had very uh, low numbers. But uh, Kennesaw, their numbers continue to rise, Georgia Southern, because they're not mandating that uh, they wear those masks. So I think that it would be smart to have young people, because it's go- the ages that uh, COVID is affecting us now are with our younger population. Mm-hmm. So I would think that the mandate should be across the board. If you're just tuning in, I'm joined by Mayor Rochelle Robertson from the city of Douglasville. And we're talking about the city's response to the pandemic, the ongoing pandemic. Now, listen, when you go to the Cobb and Douglas Public Health website, it clearly says in big red letters, COVID-19 alert. Community transmission in both Cobb and Douglas counties is once again considered high and continues to increase. As you're getting this information, what are you thinking that you all need to do better or more of continue to open up sites and just do psas we've done a lot of public service announcements on our uh, government access channels and just uh, we have reader boards everywhere we've purchased signs that are all over the interstate um, in the, where people are driving we've sent out uh, flight mailers to individuals homes other than going to the house, knocking on the door and bringing them to the health department or to the mall, we've partnered with Arbor Place Mall to have a testing site there and vaccination site, all of our, most of our parks. So I just don't know what else. We just have to gain the trust and hopefully throughout these next few months, people will, um, unfortunately, knowing someone who's passed away or have gotten sick or someone in their family, they'll be convinced that it is real. It's real. According to Georgia's Department of Health vaccine distribution dashboard, you all, or Douglas County rather, is right around 42% fully vaccinated and those with at least one dose at 48%. And I ask people these questions and some folks, you know, depending on whom you ask, they say, well, does does asking someone about what's a acceptable number, is that fair? But 42%, obviously well below the national average here. Are you paying attention to that? Would you like to see 
a, a number that you are, are comfortable with. And maybe you all can, I don't know, lack some of those restrictions that you have as it relates to the, the, some of the mandates out there. Yes, ma'am. I am not comfortable with 42 or 48 percent. Um, that's a F. We need at least a B. I mean, for herd uh, immunity, I just, you know, we're not going to push, take our foot off the accelerator until we get better numbers, because we know that this is the only thing. This is our only protection. It seems really simple. Wearing a mask, uh, washing your hands, socially distancing or being vaccinated and all and or all of the above. And we won't uh, we won't stop pushing that message until we have better numbers. But I'm not pleased at all with 42%. I appreciate that. And I appreciate people going and, and trusting the science, but we need to do a little bit better. When you think about where you would like for that number to be and in that B grade, and then you think about <laughs> what all you can and what you've done so far. Yes. But Madam Mayor, honestly, if folks have not gotten vaccinated now, uh, no. do you think they will? Do you think, and I'm not saying this, they're not worth still talking to or trying to do all that, that's up on, that's up to you all. But through your lens, do you think if folks haven't gotten vaccinated in your city, that at this point they will? I'm uh, cautiously optimistic that we can push the numbers up just a little bit more with exposure. But for the most part, you know, we're creatures of nature. And if they haven't done it this far, after almost two years, they're probably not believing um, that it's real. And we just have to keep the mandates in place to to protect ourselves. And that's sometimes where government has to be overreaching and make those decisions that's in the best for everyone and not the individual. So um, people would be, may be annoyed when they walk in the mall or Ross or uh, uh, eating establishment, but we're going to keep these mandates in place until until it we can manage it better. Meanwhile, as it relates to COVID-19, obviously we know housing affordability is an issue here in the Atlanta area and it, quite frankly, probably an issue throughout the entire state. With the evictions, with the moratoriums up, and, and I know DeKalb County, theirs is just expi- is expiring. What concerns do you have for folks, for renters facing evictions? And have you looked at the numbers in terms of folks who, who are at risk for eviction? Yes. Yes, ma'am. That is, it's alarming. I mean, it's very scary. We've seen more homeless, actually, and we do have initiatives for the homeless. We um, have uh, Sanctuary Village, which uh, one of our Superior Court judges, Judge Bo McLean, has started. And so we've gotten trailers from the school system that they've had during their building and retrofitted those trailers to be modular homes for some of the homeless. We have um, a camp behind the courthouse that city provides trash service. We do water, um, porta potties, but we're, we used to be able to count. My chief of police, Chief Spark, said we have 33 homeless people, but now it, it's starting to, the numbers are going up because we see more people that are, you know, don't have shelter. And so that is a concern for me. We have about 10% from DCA and some of the housing um, for Section 8 and all the homes for for people to live in. But I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. So So you're seeing an increase. You are seeing an increase in folks who are homeless due to losing their housing or being evicted. Yes, ma'am. And they call to the city. And so we've we're provided resources for them um, with United Way and trying to find, use those monies that we've been given from the federal government to put them in temporary housing. Um, but after, if they, if they have a job and have been able to meet their needs, 
hopefully that six months or three months or so that we've given them those resources in the hotel will give them an opportunity to find some place to live. Do you so know? Are- do you know if folks in your city have been eligible, or are they also taking advantage? Because there's a state, there's state rental assistance as well in, in Douglas County. You all are eligible for that, right? Yes, ma'am. So we've been giving them, I'm trying to see what this, it's just a whole plethora of information when they call to my office that we give them uh, for utilities, rental, um, SBA with the chamber, all of those resources to try to help them, Salvation Army, all of those. So hopefully that'll be some kind of, you know, support system and net of safety. When you came into the office, you had a list of priorities. You had a strategic plan. Most mayors in their new administration, they they have that. But then the pandemic hit, and then are you are coming in with the pandemic and all that sort of gets pushed to a side. Where are you now? Are you able to even implement some of the initiatives that you wanted pre-pandemic? Yes, ma'am. Now, this is my second term, and um, I was blessed to speak with you when I first got elected. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the citizens were gracious enough. To, I didn't have any opposition, so I was able to come back, and I think they're believing in um, the initiatives that we started, and so we're, we've been able to move the needle forward. We've purchased the old jail. We're um, looking at a town green where Milk Creek is going to be the developer for the residential and um, commercial portion, uh, amphitheater, uh, fee simple condos, and so we're green space. We're excited about that. That's happening. We're doing some infrastructure. Senator Warnock was here about a month ago to see Highway 92 that Congressman Scott helped us to get um, coming from Paulding area and Cobb to come through Douglas to get to I-20. So infrastructure is happening. The city is doing well with our parks and recreations. We're a certified um, parks community. So we've been doing, you know, while while we've been in the house in a timeout a little bit, (laughs) the city has never shut down. We've continued to move forward and work. So. The initiatives are moving forward to help the city grow. Let me get your thoughts on this, because you all are a part of the ATL, correct? That the whole transit initiative. But are you hopeful that there will be some (laughs) some transit coming through Douglas? I mean, I know how to get to Douglas County and I think I know how to get to Douglasville. But what's Uh the what's the public transit system like for you all out there? Come and visit me. I'll feed you. No, so um, <laughs> I'm on the ARC, the Atlanta Regional Commission Board of Directors. I'm the vice chair, actually. And so we were given a grant from ARC and federal for uh, $3 million to have public intermobile transportation. Mm-hmm. So we have many uh, buses, and Greta uh, helps to get our people to Hightower. I think it's a different name now, but Hightower train station. And we connect to Cobb on Thornton Road. So we do have public transportation to get people around the city of Douglasville and Douglas County, and then they can connect uh, to Cobb Transit to get into Atlanta and Greta. So that's what our public, we're starting out small. That was initiated in uh, 2019 to get people uh, moving and have, you know, some of the kids didn't want to work at the mall or Six Flags or elderly to get to uh, the water department to pay their bills. So it was some pushback but really? we do have public transportation, interconnectivity, and to get to, to Atlanta. Y'all got scooters out there? <laughs> Woo! We do not have the scooters. What? <laughs> you don't, we have, you don't uh, want we scooters have out carts. there? We don't have the scooters, but we have golf carts. <laughs> so, because we have a municipal golf course, so we pass something in the city uh, that you can drive your golf cart all through the city. Really? Is there an Woo! age requirement? 
It needs to be. I see young people with like so. There's like twelve year olds driving golf carts around Douglasville. Yes, they are. They actually are. I don't know about that, Mayor. (laughs) I know it makes me nervous too. (laughs) No disrespect to the beloved twelve year olds, Douglasville Mayor Rochelle Robinson. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Keep us posted. We'll keep looking at those COVID nineteen numbers, and we'll check in back with you all. See how you're doing. Yes, ma'am. When things lift, please come and see me. I would love to host you in Douglasville. There, there are two things. You know what I need. Okay. What you need? Good barbecue and ice cream. Come on now. I got you. If I have to do it myself. Uh, <laughs> but okay. I have. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Thank you, Mayor. I appreciate oh, well, it. I can cook. <laughs> yes, ma'am. <laughs> And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. When natural disasters strike, as the most recent Hurricane Ida, and folks are displaced, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, will they step in to help? For example, there is disaster assistance, which might include grants to help pay for temporary housing, emergency home repairs, uninsured and underinsured personal property losses, as well as medical, dental, and funeral expenses caused by the disaster. And there's always been specific criteria or documentation needed when applying for relief, including proof of land ownership. But as outlined by a Washington Post feature, it appeared that more claims were denied were common to black families due to some barriers in in providing ownership. But now that's all changing. Chris Smith is the director of the Individual Assistance Division in the Office of Office and Response and Recovery at FEMA. Chris, welcome to the program. I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me today, Rose. Let's first take our listeners through the typical FEMA application process. Now, I know it can vary depending on what kind of assistance folks need, but let's say when applying for assistance for property they own, their their house, um, what information does the agency typically require? So when an, uh, a disaster happens and, and a survivor applies for assistance, uh, right off the bat, one of the things that we uh, want to be able to do is to validate uh, that uh, who you are, identity, uh, ownership of the, of the property if you own the home. Uh, if you're a renter, then you, you uh, also occupy the home. So occupancy, ownership, and identity are the, are the top three that we really look at at the beginning of the application process to really help uh, folks get through that. And there are some uh, automated checks that we have uh, that, that we work with survivors on the, on the, on the front end of that so that uh, many times there might not be a need to provide any additional documentation because it's already in the system. Uh, but in those situations where it's not, we uh, typically will, will be able to still proceed with the application and we'll send out uh, an inspector to the home and and work with that survivor mm-hmm. to uh, potentially find out if there are any needs for uh, occupancy or ownership and how to help navigate that. And typically, if all of that checks out, uh, how long does it take for the the homeowners to either receive the assistance in whatever form that's going to be? Does it is it a long process, Chris? No, it's really not. You know. Um, the application process alone is, is like 27 minutes on average, and that's mm-hmm. something that you can do either online on disasterassistance.gov or uh, on the phones. If you if you call 1-800-621-3362 or 1-800-621-FEMA, uh, it's, so it's a short process to get the application going. Uh, and then if all things go well, as you indicated, uh, usually survivors are 
uh, will receive the financial assistance, at least that, that they're eligible for after the inspection, mm -hmm. uh, roughly between uh, potentially uh, seven days after that inspection or sooner. Wow. I, I want to ask, Chris, did you read the Washington Post, that the feature that they had about FEMA and these, and these policies? I did. I did, indeed. What did you think? Um, you know, I will tell you that, that uh, I take a lot of pride, as well as uh, many of the, in fact, all of the employees at FEMA, uh, the work that we do. We come to work every day to, to, to help people. And so, um, you know, taking a, a hard look at uh, our, our program and, and our processes and under the executive order, uh, President Biden's executive order uh, to support uh, underserved communities, uh, we really took that as an opportunity to to look at our, our program and what we could do to address uh, a, a variety of concerns, including ownership and occupancy challenges that people have had. Uh, but in that ownership vein, helping folks who were air property owners, mm -hmm. that property has has moved from generation to generation uh, is and there's no doc, legal documentation has been a challenge for mm -hmm. for people to prove that ownership. So, um, yeah, we took that next step to say, hey, if no other documentation exists, uh, we want to open up to say um, we will we will help that survivor write a self certification, and 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 we will use that self certification to to prove ownership and occupancy, and and continue down the the road of providing support to that survivor. I know when you when you read that and you see the real damage, why FEMA is denying disaster aid to black families that have lived for generations in the deep south. That is a a jarring headline and, and, and sub sub headline to read unintentional or not. So then you all said you took measures. So what did you all do? Take us through that. Did you start looking at a disparity in between denied claims as it relates to black households and non-black households, and then you went from there? You know, we don't uh, currently collect demographic data at, at FEMA with the registration. So we provide uh, assistance across the board uh, and, and so don't really have that, that information at hand. But what mm -hmm. we did do was take a hard look at uh, our, our program and policy from an equity lens and, and looked at how can we make differences very quickly with um, with changes to our program to help people overcome the most predominant challenges that we see, which were ownership and occupancy, as well as providing financial assistance to individuals who may have had uh, mold uh, problems in their home mm -hmm. due to the disaster. And mm -hmm. that's a new evolution for our program, as well as uh, providing uh, financial assistance or, or real repair assistance to help individuals who've been impacted by the uh, disaster. Maybe they, they have a disability now because of the disaster, uh, and we're wanting to help to make sure they have access to their homes. And that's not something that happened before either. Uh, FEMA officials were quoted as saying, these new changes reduce the barriers to entry for our individual assistance program and will help us to provide more equitable disaster support to all survivors, specifically for underserved populations. So let's talk about what you all no longer require or maybe we'll move positive let's talk about now the changes so the documentation has that changed at all what will you now accept that you didn't accept before chris 
So I think to, to answer succinctly, uh, without going into great amounts of detail, it's more common sense uh, information that, that people would maybe have at, at their fingertips. Uh, motor vehicle registrations, mm -hmm. uh, documentation from local schools, uh, other financial or state benefit providers, uh, or social service organizations. Uh, those are, are more of the common sense type things that we will accept now for, for occupancy verification, as well as in ownership, we'll take in um, letters from local officials now and says, hey, Chris Smith lives at this place. Or, or, or if you've got some receipts that indicate that I've got a, a financial investment that I'm making into the home, I made some repairs here, present those to us. And another thing that I'd, I'd also add is that we're, we're including um, the, the, the length of time that those, those receipts and other documentation would be valid. So previous disasters, hmm. uh, they would only be va valid for like three months prior to the date of the declaration. And now we'll accept it all the way back, a whole year back from the date of declaration. So, hmm. you know, if you've got some receipts, if you've got some things that, that you have that prove ownership or occupancy, we'll take a look at those. And the nice thing is now, too, is our inspectors are doing that with individuals in the field. So before that would have had to be done potentially over the phone and you'd have to explain that. And that gets confusing for folks. Yeah. So now having inspectors with you, working with you one on one, really helping people, we've seen a great amount of improvement in uh, folks overcoming occupancy and, and ownership challenges just by having that one-on-one -on -one conversation with our inspector in the field. The voice you hear is Chris Smith. He's the director of the Individual Assistance Division in the Office of Response and Recovery for FEMA. We're talking about some changes to the application process that might remove some barriers, especially for people of color, especially for black families as they seek assistance. Something else that you all are implementing now, you're saying that you're expanding housing assistance, and other needs assistance funding as relates to renters. Uh, it was, is that, that's, that's new? Or you just add you're expanding that? We're, we're expanding that element. And specifically what that means is for, for many people in a disaster, maybe they didn't have any impacts to the home that made it uninhabitable. Mm -hmm. I, I had a flood, but it, it didn't make my home uninhabitable. But there are still some damage uh, as, or maybe debris or maybe just cleanup, like um, uh, uh, removal of, of carpeting or cleaning the carpet, whatever the case might be. Uh, now we'll be able to provide some, some modest financial assistance to those applicants who've had that challenge. Uh, and that didn't exist before either. So really an enhancement overall to ex acknowledge the fact that Disasters affect people across the board, and, and not everybody has the, the financial resources to even address some of the most minimal concerns. And in order to be pro proactive to prevent mold uh, growth, we're going to provide some help for cleanup there, too. And obviously, if you have a situation like Hurricane Ida, and as you know, with mold and, and water and, and all that, that is definitely needed. Let's talk about this third provision here, expanding financial assistance for disaster-caused disability Take that further yeah. for our listeners, Chris. Yeah. So the bottom line with that one is is, is simple. Um, you know, prior to 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 this uh, policy going into effect, uh, we weren't able to provide assistance to individuals who might have been impact who who might have received a disability due to the disaster. So, like I said before, if I if I if my legs were broken in the disaster and I need to be in a wheelchair for a period of time, but I can't get my wheelchair up the steps, well, now. Uh, FEMA would be able to come in and, and provide uh, funding for a ramp to help me get into uh, my home. So mm -hmm. other types of disabilities that have occurred because of the disaster will cover those real property expenses now. And on top of that, it won't be part of the disaster assistance survivors 
uh, cap, that the financial cap that, that we are uh, bound by by law. And Chris, let me get your thoughts on this, because one listener may say, wow, this is 2021. And who knows, maybe if The Washington Post doesn't print, you know, publish that feature with this change, but through your lens, the importance of these changes now. I think uh, overall, the importance of these changes now and going forward is this is the step, the first step in the in the right direction. And so we want to ensure that uh, our programmatic policy, we take this this equity lens and, and we take it farther. We, we look at new policy development. We want to make sure that the, the it, inc- it, inc- it incorporates all survivors uh, across the board. And, and, and that's really difficult to do at a, at, a, at a national program level. But we've got the right team in place to do it uh, every day. FEMA employees get up, they get to work, and they, they focus on doing right for survivors and helping people. And we're going to continue to do that day and day and day, ensuring that we're taking the right steps moving forward for all survivors. And we should note for our listeners as well, because not just when we talk about hurricanes, but listen, we have these these wildfires as well. Mm-hmm. That is also a part of this. How are y'all, what is your assessment now? Because unfortunately, it seems like there's a natural disaster always happening. Uh, right now, what has the focus been? Obviously, Hurricane Ida and in the wildfires. Any other national nat- natural disasters you all are working with here in our nation? Absolutely. So we're an all-hazard organization, just like uh, state and, and locals are, are really work with all hazards that are germane to, to that their environment. So we look at uh, earthquake. We look at wildland fire. We look at uh, uh, man-made events. Uh, we are planning and preparing for this and helping our state and local counterparts do the very same thing across the board. But the thing that's most consistent here is that that individual assistance disaster declaration, when that occurs, all the program elements that we've talked about apply for every single one of those types of disasters. And pretty soon here we'll be getting into fall. And, well, we all we are in fall, but then winter as well. Um, how are you all staffed? I mean, COVID nineteen has taken a toll on a lot of agencies, federal and state and local. How are you all staffed? Uh, we are well staffed, and one of the advantages in working with FEMA is we have a a, a very comprehensive reserve element as well. So FEMA reservists uh, can come in and help us with disaster operations, which is what they're doing across the board. You're right, never in our time in our history have we ever had disaster declarations in every single state and territory due to Mm -hmm. COVID-19. So we are definitely uh, busy, uh, but we are focused on uh, what this nation needs in the face of disasters and the recovery for that. And, And we're in it every single day to to support the nation's needs. And Chris, if folks want to find out more about now the changes as it relates to applying for assistance when it, it relates to home ownership and property ownership, uh, it's information is on your website? That is correct. Uh, www.fema.gov is a great place to start out to get the information about the latest uh, information about our policies as well as uh, disaster operations and what you could do because this is preparedness month, the end of it, mm-hmm. but uh, there is always an opportunity to do uh, work for our own personal preparedness. Mm-hmm. And I recommend wholly that folks do that. Chris, I have an email from a listener who wants to know if y'all are hiring or where can they find out more information about jobs? Yeah, um, well, there's always uh, opportunities for hiring and that is uh, available at uh, USA Jobs. Uh, and that's where FEMA posts our job openings. And we have, uh, we look 
uh, across the country, but uh, we do have FEMA region headquarters right there in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and certainly if folks wanted to take a look there, they post at uh, USA Jobs. I like that. Take a look there. Chris Smith is the director of the Individual Assistance Division in the Office of Response and Recovery for FEMA. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time, answering the questions and providing this information. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Just send me an email like you always do, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online too at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like because it is free. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.